In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, last time we finished up with chapter 3. Um, today we're going to start, God willing, on chapter 4. So in chapter 4, um, St. Paul is speaking a lot about the suffering that he and his fellow apostles experience in their ministry. Um, and the enemies of St. Paul considered that the idea that St. Paul had all the sufferings and trials and troubles in his ministry, almost like this was uh, like God's displeasure um, toward St. Paul. Okay, But St. Paul is seeing it in a different way. He's saying this is not saying that like somehow God is not pleased with his ministry, but that these sufferings are actually the evidence um, of a blessing to, that, that he gets to share in the sufferings of Christ. And ultimately, one of the things that we all as believers um, experience as believers is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And then this should be um, like, a, like a glory for us and not something that we should escape from, not something that we should feel is, um, is like against us. Okay? So we'll start reading in verse one. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Okay, so St. Paul speaking about perseverance in the midst of suffering. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So we are called to um, live uh, according to our conscience in the sight of God before God. God is the judge. We have renounced the hidden things of shame. So we are committing ourselves to live a pure life. Okay. Not in craftiness. Okay. Not, not with deception, not with double-mindedness. Okay. But always manifesting the truth. And here, you know, some people um, say that he's referring to uh, the certain Jewish teachers who had always preached against him, but lived in an ungodly way themselves. This maybe bring up a, a point. I mentioned it in the Q&A uh, on Tuesday. The idea that uh, based on the, the verse where St. Paul is saying that he disciplines himself less when he has preached to others, that he himself becomes disqualified. Okay, St. Paul spoke about this to the Corinthians, that, that even though he is preaching all the time, it's easy to get into a mode, whether you're a parent or a teacher or a Sunday school servant or in whatever way, that we are called to be a role model. We are called to teach others, you know, important principles about life, about the spirit, spirituality, Christianity, and so on, that we end up getting into a mode where we are just spouting out the right answers because we know them, because we've learned them, and because we know what should be said. But when you look actually at our own life, you might find that we do not practice those same very things that we preach, okay? And this is um, a big problem, right? It's a big problem for us as individuals, and it's a problem as a church. You know, for instance, let's give you an example, like a Sunday school servant who um, has, has, you know, they have served for many years, or she has served for many years, and they're used to, they know exactly what to say, they know how to prepare a lesson really fast, they don't need to even think about it, they, they know all the things to be said, all the verses that should be said to cover a specific topic, and so on. So for them, the service becomes kind of like it's on automatic. And from the outside, you know, looking at it, you say, okay, I mean, this person is doing what they should be doing. But if you maybe examine the personal life of this person, you'll find that they are maybe not even living at all or even trying to live this life 
It's all just knowledge and information that they have acquired over the years that maybe at one point it was something that was stronger, something that they, they tried to live or they lived kind of with a greater zeal and fervor in their life. But now it's just kind of become information and we are putting on a show almost because we know exactly what should be said and what should be done. And so it's kind of almost comes out in a cold way and it's not really reflecting of my personal um, lifestyle. It's reflecting more on what I know is the right answer. So St. Paul always speaks about how we should not be double-minded and how we should be preaching what it is that we're practicing and practicing what it is that we're preaching. So even to the extent that he himself says that I'm the one who goes around everywhere preaching to everyone, but I have to discipline myself, right? Like it's not enough for me to just preach about discipline. I have to discipline myself lest after I have preached to others, I myself become disqualified. I also mentioned, I didn't say the name of who it was, but I, I mentioned also on Tuesday that there was, you know, a very famous Christian apologist, uh, Christian leader, um, who was well known all over the world, and he would go all over the world, uh, like preaching, going to visit universities, he was very into apologetics and debating people and speaking to atheists, and he had an organization and all this stuff, and then he passed away last year, okay, but it was discovered that he was involved in all kinds of sexual misconduct that nobody knew about, right? And it was only discovered like later on and really addressed later on after he died. So it's a very disappointing thing, but it reminds us that we are all subject to temptation and that we are all subject, even that when you, when you look at someone who from the outside is doing everything right and doing everything they should be doing. And you look at this person and you say, this person is a great example and a great role model and a great teacher. Right, but what do you what, what do you find from the inside? Right? Not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That what I am offering as a service to God is not for just to put on a show to please people or to fill certain expectations that people have of me, but that I'm truly and sincerely living a life of repentance. And this does not mean that we do not sin, right? This does not mean that we do not fall. King David fell, right? King David, he felt big, and it wasn't even a small thing. And it was a very public fall. But because King David was so focused all the time on repentance, I mean, after he fell into sin with Bathsheba, this is when he, he, he writes Psalm 50, that we pray in the Igbeya every hour, right? You know, have mercy on me according to your great mercy, right? Like, I'm conscious all the time of my iniquities before me. Like he's really truly repentant and he admitted his sin. Um, so it is not, I'm not trying to say that as leaders or servants or teachers or parents that we are, have to be perfect and we can never fall. But there is a difference between someone who falls but is struggling and trying to do good versus a person who is not even making an attempt and is flagrantly like abusing their position without any real desire for, for holiness or any, any desire to change, any desire for repentance, while at the same time, they are preaching these messages to the people. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Okay? So what is this, what is he saying here? Okay, 
The, if the message of the gospel is veiled, this represents what period of time that the message of the gospel was veiled? Yeah, so the Old Testament, right? Because during the Old Testament, the message of the gospel was veiled. It was like covered. It wasn't clear. There wasn't, people didn't really understand it, right? They, they didn't understand what was to come, okay? So it was unclear. It wasn't comprehensible. Okay, this is the, the time where the message of the gospel was veiled, okay? So in the New Testament, the gospel is illuminated for us. Like we are illuminated. We are made to be able to understand the gospel. We are made to be able to live the gospel. We have an understanding now of the gospel, right? This is why in baptism it's called the sacrament of enlightenment, because we have now been able to see. We used to be blind, and now we can see. But to those who even now, okay, to them the gospel is veiled. Why? Because the minds of the, the, the those people, their minds of uh, the God of this age has blinded, right? So there are people living now, right, in the New Testament time, where the, the message of God is available to everyone, where the truth of salvation is offered to everyone, and yet many people obviously do not respond to this. Many people do not see this. Many people do not understand this. Just as in the Old Testament, the, the, the eyes of the people were veiled, they couldn't see the truth. So now also in our age today, there are many people who cannot see the truth, who do not believe, okay? So how can, let me ask you this question. How can we ask those who are not believers to believe. How is it that a person who is not a believer, based on this, how is it that a person who is not a believer, who obviously does not have a relationship with God and who obviously doesn't know anything about Christianity necessarily, how is it that that person would come to believe if they are blinded to the truth? Well, preaching is a message, right? So if, if, if I go and preach to a person and that person doesn't have, like their, their eyes are not open in the sense, like here, like he's talking about the God of this age has blinded them. Okay, so how are they gonna understand and respond to the preaching? Yes, the light of the gospel has to shine on them. But why would it shine on some people and not other people? Okay, definitely you have to be sincere in, in, in your desire to, to know the truth, right? A lot of people say that they want to know the truth, but they don't realize that they are only willing to accept a certain truth. There's some truths that are uncomfortable that we don't want to be true, right? Like, for instance, I might not want to accept that something is true if it means that I have to give up my lifestyle, right? So a person who is living a certain lifestyle that is an ungodly one. And then now they are coming to evaluate the truthfulness of the Christian faith. So maybe there is some unknown hidden bias inside of them that is keeping them from accepting the possibility of the truthfulness of, of these statements that we are saying, because they know that if they accept it, then what does it mean? It means they would have to give up their lifestyle, which they don't want to do. Okay, so that's one, one, one thing, right? What else? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so he's speaking about their contemporary time, right? So there are people at that, living at that time and, and our time now whose mind's the God of this age. Who is the God of this age? Yeah, well, the, the devil, right? The devil blinds us through different means. What are the means by which we are blinded? By him. Sin, attract, attraction to something that is against God. Anything that is attracting, like we spend so much of our energy trying to attain certain things in the world. And if some of those things that we are reaching after and seeking are against God, then it's like I'm putting all of my energy into something that continues this blindness, right? That I'm blinded all the time. Look at the example of Cornelius. Hey, Cornelius was who? Who's Cornelius? Centurion? And what happened with him? Yes. So he was he was um, a Gentile, a centurion. Okay, so he's not is not uh, a Jewish person. Okay, um, but he lived righteously, right? It says what that he gave alms, he prayed. Okay, um, so God saw him fit to know the truth. So an angel appeared to him and told him, "Go call for Saint Peter to come, and he will preach to you the truth." Okay, so why doesn't God do that with everybody? Yes, he was he was living according to what he knew, right? So this is from Romans chapter two. It says what? For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. So what does this mean? It means that every human being, whether you believe in God or not, whether you're a Christian or not, has been implanted in us a certain moral code of right and wrong. Okay? And so this becomes, for, for someone who is not a Christian, who doesn't know the actual command of God, this becomes their commandments. Okay? So if a person is... Um, faithfully following their conscience and avoiding those things against their conscience, that it's like this person is, is ready to receive the truth, right? And so God sees them ready to receive the truth. He will then give them the truth, give them the fullness of the truth, right? Just like Cornelius here. But if a person is not even following their own conscience, which is already inside of them, like they're already being convicted inside of them of a certain feeling, like, okay, that maybe... Um, Stealing from this certain person is wrong. Like you don't need someone to tell you that stealing is wrong for you to feel that it's wrong. Like even children understand that stealing is wrong even without having told them. It's innate inside of us, okay? So, so if, if a person is not listening even to their own conscience, which is inside of them, okay, then maybe they are not ready to, 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 to like receive more of the truth, okay? So the more that we sin, even, even when we don't, even when it's just a sin against our own conscience in the sense that we don't even know the law of God, but we are just breaking the, the law um, that is implanted in us, okay? This is a source of blindness. So the more that we sin, the more blinded we are, 
And the more blinded we are, the more we justify the reasons why we might not believe or we might not do certain things. Why is it that people leave the church? Usually people leave the church not because they have come to the realization that certain aspects of the faith, they don't believe them anymore. That's typically not the reason why people leave the church. The, the reason people leave the church usually is because they, are, they have fallen into some kind of sin that they don't want to repent from. They have fallen into some kind of temptation that is overwhelming them, and they, they don't know how to deal with it, and it causes them to leave. It's usually not, you know what, I studied the Orthodox Creed, and I studied the Bible, and I determined that, that this is false information. Typically not. Yes, in some cases, but typically that's not what you, what you see. Right, so oftentimes the reason why someone resists the truth is because what the God of this age has blinded them through temptation and through sin. Okay, that's why St. Paul emphasizes here um, living in purity. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, okay? So it is this light of Christ that shines on those who are ready to receive him. So Christ, he sees who is ready to receive the truth, and he shines this light of knowledge and understanding on them, okay? And this knowledge is not just a knowledge of information, okay? This knowledge that is imparted by Christ to someone is an experiential knowledge. It's a, it's a life. It's a power. It's something that is more than just information that I didn't know before, and now I know it, okay? It's, it, it changes your perspective on everything because it's a realization of the truth. It, and, and that truth is not just information. That truth demands action, right? That truth demands some kind of movement, that I move, that I change something, that something about me changes as a result of this truth that I now know. Another reason why someone might be stagnating and not really advancing in, on knowledge and understanding and faith is because they do not live according to the faith they already have. Like if, if, if I have a certain measure of faith, if I have a certain um, deposit that God has given me of faith and understanding at the level where I am, if I am faithful with this and I follow this, then God can give me more, right? Just as in the parable of the talents, when he says what the person who was faithful with the talents, they, re they received more talents, right? So if I'm faithful with what God has given me, God can promote me. He can give me more, right? But if I'm unfaithful, even with the little that I have, then why would God give me more? Why would he fill me with more? Why would he give me greater understanding and greater experience and greater wisdom, right? So here St. Paul is saying that this preaching that they preach is not just empty words. But it is powerful, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, ready to reveal the truth through the light of the gospel and the light of Jesus Christ shining on anyone who is willing to accept. So there is a power. And this goes again to, um, like when we speak about evangelism and preaching to others. When we are evangelizing to someone, it is not through empty words. It is not just the statements of the words that we're saying is going to convince their mind of the truth. We are trusting in the work of God in that person. If you look at the encounter between Philip and Nathaniel, okay? Philip, he 
discovered the Messiah. He discovered Christ, and he believed in him that he was Christ. So the scripture says he went to his friend Nathaniel and he told him, look, we have found the one whom the, the, the prophets prophesied about, through the, the one the scriptures spoke about. And Nathaniel was extremely skeptical. And he's like, are you sure? How could anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't believe him, right? Very similar to when we go and, you know, we, we have a conviction of the truth and of our faith and we go um, evangelize that, speak to someone about that, and all that we get from them is skepticism and arguments, and you know they don't believe it. Okay, but once Nathaniel, Philip invited Nathaniel, he said to him, "Come and see." So Nathaniel came and he met Christ, and the moment he met Christ, everything changed. Suddenly, he believes in him and believes that he is the Son of God and everything. Why? Because of the encounter that he had with Christ, not with the encounter that he had with Philip. Okay. So evangelism is bringing the Lord to the people, okay? Bringing the Lord to the people. It's not bringing the words, our words to the people. It's bringing the Lord to the people and bringing the people to the Lord, okay? So for instance, whenever we have an opportunity to actually invite somebody to a Bible study or invite someone to something where they will hear the words of God, like in the church, it's always a very good thing because God has a way of speaking to that person while they are sitting there that somehow they hear the words that they need to hear. Just as Nathaniel, he heard the words from Christ that he needed to hear to believe, right? So it is not with empty words. It is not with proofs. It is not with, let me sit down with you and prove to you from the Bible that the Bible is true. This is not, this is, this is not what is going to convince people of the truth. The truth calls us to action, right? You know, you guys like in your universities, you, you, you have a lot of classes and you learn a lot of information. How much of the time do you learn that information and you walk out of that class being like, I have to change my life now because of this information that I just learned? Yeah. Never. Very, very little. Awful, like, like that barely happens. Know, barely happens. Never. <laughs> right? So, so but, but when we're speaking about the Lord, we're not just teaching it. Like, you know, like when you take a religion class in the university, a religion class on the university, that's all it is. Let me teach you some information about a religion called Christianity, you know, and this is what the religion believes, and this is their holy book, and this is this and this and this, right? It's just information, but that, those empty words are not infused with the power of change, the power of transformation, the power of faith. So when, when the Lord is working in an evangelism encounter, just like with Philip and Nathaniel, it's not just empty words, it's, it's power. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Okay, so what is he talking about, this treasure in earthen vessels? What does that mean? What, is, what does he mean here by saying we have this treasure in earthen vessels? What is this treasure and what is the earthen vessels? Yeah, so the earthen vessels are us, right? Our treasure is? Our voice, okay. What is the treasure though? Yeah, like the, the truth, right? The truth of God is the treasure, right? We have this treasure that we are speaking and the power of God in us. 
okay? And so even though from the outside, we look just like human beings. I mean, we are human beings. We are earthen vessels, right? Like anyone else. But we, are, we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And the preaching that St. Paul is speaking about is these are not empty words that we are speaking, that even though we are human beings, like, like all other human beings, but the words that we speak are infused with power because the power is of God and not of us, right? The power is of God. What we preach is not of us. It is of God himself because it is God who wants the salvation of the world more than we want it. He wants the salvation of the world, right? He doesn't want the sinner to die, but rather that he return and live. This is the will of God for all the world. This is what he wants. So, so whenever we go and we speak to someone about the faith, about the truth, about salvation, God is there working. Okay, He is not sending us there alone. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus and the life of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Sounds nice. Um, you know, like, like when, when we read this, we understand it and it makes sense. But the question is, is we, we, would we want this? Like if I was asked a question, you know, if we're like, like look at the, when Christ would come to someone and he would say, come and follow me, right? He was calling him to be a disciple. He was saying, come and follow me. And he said this to several people. Some people followed and look at the life of the people who followed. And some people did not follow. Right? Who are some people that followed? Well, like St. Peter and St. Andrew, they followed. Levi followed. And you use those exact words, follow me. Right? A person who didn't follow is like the rich young ruler. Okay. If you look at the life of the people who said okay to this, to this calling, right? To this invitation. And, you know, who wouldn't want to be a disciple of Christ? Like, like it sounds really nice to be a disciple of Christ. And you get to see Christ and you be with Christ all the time. But what was the outcome of their life? What did it look like? They, they were killed. Predominantly, right? They were killed. And they didn't have a lot of comfort in their life up until that point either. <clears throat> so it's not like they didn't get a lot of earthly benefits, right? By accepting that invitation. And if you look at the life of the rich and ruler, of course, we don't know what happened to him after that story. But he was a rich man. And you might expect that he continued to live his life as a rich man and enjoying the benefits of his riches. So if somebody came to us and he said, pick, pick one, which would you choose? Well, maybe we would look at what the life looks like. And you have one person whose life is full of hardship and ultimately is killed. And another person whose life is very comfortable. Huh? So, and this is exactly what St. Paul is describing. He's saying we are hard pressed, right? But we are not completely crushed. We are not destroyed. We are perplexed, right? But we are not in despair. We still have hope. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken by God because he is not, he is allowing our persecution for our mission. He is not out of control. This is not out of control persecution. He is allowing this persecution, okay? We are struck down and we are hurt, but we are not completely destroyed, 
because God protects us from being destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So here's the thing, is if we want to have the power of God, okay, in order to have the life of Jesus manifested in us, then we also have to have the sufferings of Jesus manifested in us. Because what happens when you have just the power, okay, and the life, but without the suffering? This is exactly what's, what happened with St. Paul when he had a thorn in his side. And he asked God to remove it from him three times. And each time, he, the Lord said no, right? And he said, what? lest I be puffed up from all of the revelations that I've seen, lest I be so puffed up by the position that I have, the miracles that I have seen, the miracles I can do, the demons I can cast out, the position I have in the church, you know, like the devil is so easy for him to capture and, 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 and defeat a person who is very successful, right? Like a person who is very successful, especially successful in the spiritual stuff, okay? He is on the devil's radar, and, he, and the devil wants him to fall. And he will find a way to make him fall. And he will find a way to make him fall through the service that he is doing. Because that is the most deceptive way. So for St. Paul, he is saying what God saw, that in order for me not to be puffed up because of all of this revelations that I am seeing and seeing visions of heaven and all the stuff, that I have to experience suffering. And then it, it is through this suffering that he said what? That the Lord said to him, Your, uh, my strength is perfected in weakness. Meaning if we really want to have the strength of God working in us, then we have to feel in need of him. When I feel in need of God, then certainly the power of God is manifested in me. That it is visible on me. That I am that I'm living only because God supports me. I'm not living because I can support myself. And certainly St. Paul is a person that we can say he did nothing to support himself. He was being supported by the Lord in everything that he did. And that's why he was so successful. And the only way that he could have been this successful is because he suffered this much. And we wish it wasn't so, because we wish it didn't have to be, because we want both at the same time. We want to have the comfort and the good life, and we want to have the strong spiritual life and the serving God. I'm not trying to say that this is not possible. What I'm trying to say is that often God calls us to carry a cross, and that cross, when we look at it, we maybe would say, like the things that St. Paul said here, we are hard-pressed, we are in despair, we are persecuted, we are struck down, right? And we look at all the negative ones, right? And we say, this is how I feel about myself, about my life right now. But St. Paul looked at it on the flip side, and he said, well, even though I am hard-pressed, I'm not crushed. And even though I'm perplexed, I'm not in despair. And even though I'm persecuted, I have not been forsaken. And more than all of that, the, the, the gift that I have of, of living in this way is that the, the life of Jesus may be manifested in me. Right? For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So if I come to a person and say, would you like the life of Jesus to be manifested in your mortal flesh? You say, yeah, I want the life of Jesus manifested in my mortal flesh. Well, are you willing to take all that other stuff with it? And that's when we start to think about it. That's when 
we put ourselves in the place of the rich young ruler and we say, would I have, what would I have done if I was in the place of this man? It's not an easy question. You know, it's not an easy question. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be so um, easy to dismiss it and say, well, of course I'll do that. And we look at the rich young ruler and we say, oh, how could he, how could he not give up all that he had? You know, we see examples of others who did. Okay. But it is not an easy question. And St. Paul makes it clear here. This is the true successful Christian person. A person who is willing to sacrifice whatever for God. If God doesn't ask him to sacrifice, great. If God asks him to sacrifice, am I willing to give it up? So then, death is working in us, but life in you. Meaning what? The sufferings that the apostles are experiencing is for the sake of the salvation of the Corinthians. The, the, the suffering we experience is so that we can serve you. And in serving you, and in manifesting the power of God in you and to you, you believe and have salvation, and we suffer for that. We suffer for the sake. Look at, look at those, let's say, the bishops who carry the biggest burden for the sake of the salvation of the church, who are nonstop, Pressed, nonstop busy, nonstop attacked, nonstop have no time for themselves, have no life to themselves. And all they do is to sacrifice themselves in whatever capacity for the church, nonstop every day for the rest of their life. This is what St. Paul is talking about. For, for, for the people to have salvation, the shepherds have to suffer. Right? That is what he's saying. And since we have the same spirit of faith, According to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Okay, so it's not all doom and gloom. Like we are, we are subjecting ourselves to this, yes, but we are subjecting ourselves to it because the reward that comes at the end which is an eternal reward, is far greater than the earthly pleasures of temporary comfort in the world. So someone who knows this is willing to suffer for it. And actually, we do this all the time in other things. Let's say education. People, kids start their education when they're, what, three years old? They start going to daycare and going to pre-K. And they start this when they're three years old and they continue until they're like in their early 20s, subjecting themselves to the suffering of homework and tests and spending hours and hours in the classroom, sitting at a desk and struggling and struggling and struggling. And this becomes, that's why even we call the person a student. Like that's, that's the phase of life that you're in is the phase of being a student. You are suffering as a student in order to learn everything you need to learn in order to be successful in life. But because you, slash your parents, when you're a kid, understand that in order for you to be successful in your life, 20 years from now, you have to start now. You have to start sacrificing your time now. Think about all the time that we spend in school or studying or doing something school-related all through the first 20 years of our life. You know, it's a huge amount of time. Why did we do that? We did it so that we could make a living and we could have a career 20 years from, from, from then. So we plan ahead when it comes to things in the world and nobody questions that. Nobody questions that. Nobody looks at that and says, you're crazy for doing that. Why are you wasting your time for 20 years? 
We don't do that because we understand the importance. We understand what would happen if a person is uneducated and illiterate and they can never get a job, they cannot function in society, right? So it's so important that we say 20 years before you need it, you're gonna start. You're gonna start learning slowly. You're gonna start learning, you're gonna start learning. And, and even against all kinds of resistance, you're gonna push yourself and you're gonna do it. So when it comes to the spiritual life, it should be the same concept. Maybe it's harder for us to imagine it or visualize it, right? We are preparing ourselves for something in the future. We are preparing ourselves for something. And in order to prepare, we have to sacrifice for it. We have to sacrifice for it. This is why when it comes to things in the church, it's sad that people so often are easy to dismiss it. You know, someone might not be willing to skip a class, but they'll be very willing to skip a Bible study. Someone might be not willing to skip, um, you know, something related to their job because they have to be at their job on time, but they come to the church very late or sometimes not at all because it's not important. I'll just go next week. If we had that same mentality about our work or our school, where would we be? You know, has anyone ever said, I'm not going to go to work today because I'm going to go again next week? No one has ever thought of that either because we know that work is critical. It's important for us. Right? We have to do it. But when it comes to God, oftentimes we, we don't have that same thinking. For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There's a lot here, okay? So what is he saying? Again, he's saying everything that the apostles are doing is for the sake of the people. All the things are for your sake. All the suffering we experience is for your sake that the grace of God may work in us and work in you, okay? And this would be a source of thanksgiving to you. Like, how thankful are we for our bishop, for instance, when we see that he is suffering for us, when we see that he is, like, doing all kinds of stuff for our benefit, and we see his suffering, we are thankful. And we are not just thankful to him, we are thankful to God. We thank God for having this shepherd, right, who is our shepherd. So his suffering results in the grace of God working in him and in us and causes us to be thankful for all of this. So we do not lose heart that even though the outward man is perishing, what does it mean that the outward man is perishing? Our bodies are perishing. Right? Our bodies are perishing. And, you know, we, 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 we sometimes want to forget that that's the case. You know, maybe you guys who are younger can forget it more easily than those of us who are older. Um, but, but to be honest, like from the moment we are born, the timer starts to tick. There's only a certain amount of time. The outward man is perishing. If we recognize that something is perishing, we, we are more sober-minded in how much we invest in it. You know, like I used this example before, like let's say, you had this really expensive mansion that cost millions of dollars and someone was willing to give it to you. How much would you be willing to pay for it? Let's say they said, I'm going to give it to you for 
It costs millions of dollars. Would you be able to scrounge up $10,000 to buy it? Maybe, right? It's a good deal. But what if they told you that a wrecking crew was going to demolish the house tomorrow? Is it still worth $10,000? But it's the same house. It's the same house. It just doesn't worth as much because it's going to last for such a short time. So the same is with the outward man. When we believe that the outward man is um, immortal, will live forever, then we just put all our energy in the outward man. We put all our energy into this world, into this life, into our career, into our family, into this. It's like everything goes into that because it is of high value and we believe that we're going to have it forever. Okay. But if we remember, this is one of the, the steps of the ladder of divine ascent. If you read the book from St. John Climacus, one of the, the steps of the ladder is the remembrance of death, which sounds very morbid. Okay. But it's not morbid, it's realistic. It is remembering that the outward man is perishing. So if I have in my mind that the outward man is perishing, then fasting isn't as hard anymore. And tithing isn't as hard anymore. And praying isn't as hard anymore. And not being attached to the worldly things is not as hard anymore. And not being addicted to money is not as hard anymore. Because I realize that those things tomorrow are going to be taken. Why invest time and effort and energy into something that's going to be taken from me so soon? And that's the thing is, what is the soon? The soon is the, the, is the catch. How soon is soon? You know, there's a story, I don't remember which month it was. There's a story about um, the devil wanting to tempt this monk. He wanted to tempt him by telling him how much more years he has to live. So he told him, um, why are you spending all of your time doing matanyas and praying and fasting and doing all this? You're going to live for another 50 years. Take it easy and enjoy yourself. And then as the time approaches, you know, then you can get more serious about your repentance and so on. So the monk responded to, this, to the demon and he said, I only have 50 years left. I thought it was going to be even more than that. Now I have to double my prayers and double my fastings and double everything. So one person looks at 50 years and says, well, that's forever. There's no point in me being serious about this now. I can deal with it at a later time. For now, let me put all my energy into the outward man. And once I'm satisfied that the outward man is taken care of and everything is good with the outward man, then I can start thinking about the inward man. But the wise person will say, 50 years is actually not that long. And for a person who, as you get older, you realize how the time just flies and you don't know where it's gone and you look back and you wonder did I really use the time in the right way or not so here St. Paul is saying invest in the inward man because even though the outward man the physical man the, the, the visible man is getting more feeble and getting more tired getting more exhausted and perishing day after day after day the inward man is becoming more alive day after day after day it's becoming more sanctified. It's becoming more transformed. It's becoming more holy. It's becoming more glorified. So anything you invest in the inward man will not be taken away. Anything you invest in the outward man has a, has a lifespan. And once that lifespan is up, whatever we put in there is going to be gone. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 
is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So what does he mean when he says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory? Yeah, and and you know, if you go to someone who is suffering horribly and just has experience of tragedy, and you go to that person and you say, "Oh, this is just a light affliction," you know, maybe that's not the best way to say it. <laughs> but this is what Saint Paul is trying to communicate. He's saying, no matter how bad. No matter how bad it is on the earth, it is still a temporary amount of time. And no matter how bad it is, your inward man can still be um, renewing and refreshing every day. Because the inward man doesn't depend on anyone else but myself. Right? The outward man, people can attack me, people can kill me, people can persecute me, people can harm me, people can mock me, people can insult me. All those things, they can hurt the outward man. So I'm always subject to the, the actions of others when it comes to the outward man. But the inward man, no one can touch the inward man. Not even the devil can touch the inward man. You know, he says that we are in the, in the hands of the Father and no one can pluck us from his hand except me. I'm the only one that can do the plucking. I'm the only one that can decide to abandon the inward man. Right? So whatever afflictions that we face you know, when people say, why is God allowing this? Why is God not helping? Why did God not do this? Why did not God do that? Why is he allowing all this affliction? Okay, I don't have an answer for the specifics of that question. But I have a general answer. And it is here. That whatever light affliction God allows in our life, it is producing for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He's taking the, the things that is happening to our, to our outward man. He is converting it to something good for our inward man. He is allowing us to experience some kind of suffering because without suffering, and this is a part of our, our diseased nature, is that our diseased nature says that if nothing happens to us that makes us feel that we are in need of something bigger than us, then we will feel like we are invincible and we will not think about anything else but ourselves. If you have a person who doesn't believe that they are in need of God, it's very easy to, to, to leave God. Even if it's not um, like a decision. Like I'm not saying we're necessarily going to decide, you know what, I don't believe in God anymore. No. But maybe we just won't pray as much anymore. Maybe we won't fast as much anymore. Maybe we won't take communion as much anymore. Maybe we won't confess as much anymore. Just because we are so surrounded by all the details and distractions of the outward man. And I feel like I'm handling it. Everything is okay. I, I, God is superfluous. Why do I need God? I see God as being one extra responsibility and requirement that I have to add on top of my already busy schedule. You know, I'm already having to go to work every day for nine hours and I'm, then I'm having to take care of my family and then I'm having to you know, also study classes in night school and then I'm also having other things 
I have to do, and I look at my day and my week, and it's so full, and I don't have time to come to, to the church. How often do we hear this? All the time. How often do we ourselves maybe think this and, and say this? Maybe we have as well. So what is this saying? He's saying, if I do not feel in need of God, then it is so easy for us to just leave God as one thing in our schedule, and it's so easy for us to, um, to cancel him because he is not related to the outward man. We've become so obsessed with the outward man that anything that doesn't directly benefit the outward man is almost like it's irrelevant. It's not significant. Why spend my time investing in an invisible man, which I can always do that later? 50 years from now, I can do it. I don't have to do it now, I do it later. There's no direct visible benefit. And so I put it off, I put it off, I put it off until I even have no desire to do it anymore. So instead, he's saying, God allows affliction. If this world didn't have affliction, I, I, I would be bold to say that there might not be any Christians. St. Paul himself, who is St. Paul, God said you have to have affliction. And if you don't have affliction, you're going to be puffed up. And if you're puffed up, you might lose your mind. You know, you might let all this power and authority get to your mind, and you will not be the St. Paul that we know today, right? So if God saw that St. Paul needed affliction in his life, the one who could cast out demons, how much more do we need affliction? So when affliction comes, because it always comes to all of us in various degrees and various times, right? Our first reaction should not be, why God? Why are you allowing this? We already know why. Maybe we don't know the details or the specifics. We don't know what would have happened had such and such thing not happened. We, we might not know that. But we know the principle, right? We know the principle. If God is a caring father, think about parents, okay? If, if, if you are a parent and you see that your child is about to fall into a pit and it is within your power to save your child and you're standing right there, any parent would reach down and grab the child and keep it from falling to the pit. And if you saw a parent not do that, you would conclude that that parent hates his kid, is a negligent parent, is an irresponsible parent, whatever. He didn't help his kid. He doesn't love his kids. So we try to take that analogy and we apply it to God. And we say, God, if you really loved me, then why did you let me fall into the pit? Couldn't you have stopped it? Couldn't you have prevented this from happening? Couldn't you have made it such that I don't fall so that this catastrophe doesn't happen to me. You are God and you say you love me and you're, you say you're powerful. So you have all the things necessary to have prevented me from falling into this pit and yet you didn't. So we go back again to this. Maybe there is some benefit of falling in that pit. Maybe that pit has a lesson in it that will save us from a worse pit. Save us from a worse catastrophe. Right? So God knows what he's doing. And it's easy to say it's harder to live it, okay? That's why we always have to remind ourselves of this and ask for God's grace to live this. But St. Paul is making it very clear. The, the, the small pricks, the paper cuts on our outer man is producing in us an unimaginable glory in heaven. This is what he's saying, this light affliction. This light affliction is producing an unbelievable eternal weight of glory. Okay, we do not look at the things which are seen, because if you look at the things that are seen, you won't comprehend this. 
If you don't believe in the afterlife, if you don't believe in the existence of heaven and the reward in heaven, then all this is nonsense. Because I expect that all the reward is going to come here. If you're going to reward me, reward me here. If you're going to reward me, give me a million dollars. If you're going to reward me, cure me of my disease. If you're going to reward me, let me get married and have kids like I always wanted. Those are the rewards that are in our mind. And maybe we spend a lot of our time asking God for those things. Because we define that those things are the evidence of God's love and that those things are what we should get because God loves us. But God is not only interested in those things. He is more interested in the eternal things, right? The things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So if we look at life from God's perspective, a lot of things make sense. A lot of things in the world, a lot of things that happen to us personally make sense. But we have to keep reminding ourselves, okay, of this, because this is extremely important. Any questions about that chapter, chapter four? <clears throat> so he continues <clears throat> along the same um, like along the same topic here. So he says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So what is this house or tent he's talking about? Well, he's saying if this tent is destroyed, so which tent is this? Yeah, so what is the earthly house? Because you know, St. Paul was a tent maker. So he knows a lot about tents. The world? Yeah, and specifically what part of the world? Our bodies. So our tent is like our habitation, like our flesh that we live in, right? Our tent. Okay, so if this tent is destroyed, right, which is one of the things that human beings fear more than anything else, is death, okay? We have a building from God, okay, um, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, okay? So St. Paul is explaining why a true servant of God should not lose heart or become discouraged, okay? Because even if the worst thing we can imagine on the earth happens, which is that our physical life ends, the life that God has prepared for us in heaven is a far greater life. A far greater life. And even if we had the most glorious things on the earth, the life in heaven is a far greater life. In Philippians 3, <clears throat> says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Our citizenship is in heaven. So when we die, we are going back to our home. We are going to the place where we were supposed to be all along, right? We are being restored to a place that, that fits us. We're, we're going to the place that meets our needs, not this place, which is not meeting our needs in so many ways. Here we struggle to meet our needs, right? And we expect that there is always some needs that are not going to be met. But in heaven, every single need is met. <clears throat> in John 14, Christ says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. 
And this is exactly what Christ did. When uh, he opened the gates of paradise after the resurrection, he prepared this place for us. He prepared a place where we can live. Okay. St. Didymus the blind. He says, Paul here talks about two different worlds. One of them earthly, made with hands and seen, and the other heavenly, not made with hands, eternal and unseen. On the earth, our souls are clothed with the organic seen body. But once this body is forsaken, the soul, the soul moves towards the heavenly medium where it restores her body, uh, yet transformed into a heavenly body. So we place all of our hope in this. This is why we have hope. And this is why we can sacrifice this life for the sake of a better. Right? If we didn't believe that there was anything after this life, then there would be no point at all in sacrificing anything. We would actually cling to absolutely everything that we could here because this is the only thing we have. Right? But here, God is saying, sacrifice what you have here and wait for what is better. Right? Wait for the thing that is better. Also, this kind of joy that we experience living in the building from God is not just something that we have to wait for to happen in heaven, right? All of these spiritual benefits that we get, that when you speak about we're going to be in heaven and all these things are going to happen, we can experience this now, right? We can experience this now. Christ said what? The kingdom of heaven is within you. Meaning through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in us, we become temples of the Holy Spirit, so we become heaven, right? So a person who truly seeks from the Lord to experience all the benefits of heaven can experience it on earth, right? It's, not, it's a struggle. It's a spiritual struggle for our whole life. But God offers it to us, and it's like a glimpse of what we see um, ultimately in heaven. For in this, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. So we are longing for heaven. At least we should be. We are groaning, longing for heaven, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. That's how it should be. It should be that we see heaven as so wonderful that we are yearning for it day and night. But it's difficult for us as human beings to let go of what is here. And we doubt and wonder if heaven is going to be as good as, it, as, as, as the Bible says that it is. You know, like when you speak up to a child about heaven, they start asking questions about if their toys are going to be there, their pets are going to be there, if there's going to be rides. If there's going to be other fun stuff that they recognize on the earth are enjoyable. Is heaven going to have that stuff? You know, because our, our imagination is limited. Right? Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. It is impossible to imagine that for me, yeah, if heaven was like Disney World for free and free parking, then that would be like the best. You know, like, 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 like that is maybe the limit of, of our imagination, if we can imagine of how good it could be. And so when we start, we start comparing heaven to earth and we say, well, how, could heaven really be that good? I mean, does it have, you know, pizza? 
I mean, does it have like all the stuff that we love? Does it have that stuff? And we start wondering and we say, you know, I really hope it has it, you know, because, because in our earthliness, we are so attached to what we define to be good on the world. It is difficult for us to imagine that a place that doesn't have any of those things is infinitely better, right? And, and part of the reason is because while we are here on earth, we are still have our corrupted flesh. So our corrupted flesh is attracted to the corrupted things. It's attracted to the things that are really not of that much value. But in heaven, we will change such that being in the presence of God is the number one thing on our mind. It is the number one thing on our mind. You know, like if I were to tell you we're going to come and have a liturgy and the liturgy is going to be for 72 hours. And no one's going to go home for 72 hours. I don't think a lot of people would come. You know, it's hard for us to be here for just a few hours. And after Good Friday, after like eight hours, like, oh, that was a long day. But imagine an eternity in the presence of God and praying to God and being with God and only thinking about spiritual things. Nothing else. No eating, no drinking, no sleeping, no games. None of those things. Because we simply will not find them interesting anymore. We will be different. We will be changed. We will not find those things interesting. The things that we have there are going to be the only things we care about, right? So we should be groaning, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven, okay? <clears throat> A person who has tasted God um, desires him more than the world. A person who really, even in this life, has tasted God desires him more than the world. In Psalm 34, 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. You know, people who are not Christians, they look at Christians who are denying themselves a lot of worldly pleasures. And they say about us that we are wasting our life. You know, you, you are not, you are not um, enjoying all of these things in the world. You're wasting your life. Well, if we really are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, and we really are earnestly desiring to be close to our habitation and, and groaning, waiting in expectation for this, then all these other things have no fascination for me. It, it, it's, it's just, it's not interesting to me, right? It's, it's nothing compared to my level, right? It's like, imagine that you live in this palace that is everything is made of gold and you got servants to serve you whenever you want. Like everything is perfect. And then you leave that place and you go to the small shack, you know, and, 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 and has none of those things. And you say, oh, enjoy this, you know. Like that's the, 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 the comparison. It's like we're living in this shack and we are looking at this golden palace and we're wondering if it has all the stuff that we enjoy, you know. It is like so much higher than the stuff we enjoy that it's almost like we can't comprehend it. <clears throat> also, Saint, or Christ, he said, Speaking about heaven, he said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This treasure is so important and so valuable that I'm willing to give up every single thing in order to buy this field. That's how valuable that treasure is. If I see heaven as that valuable, then I will give up anything to attain it. This is, this is just like common sense this is economics you know like this is there's nothing here profound if something is valuable 
I'm willing to give up things of lesser value to get it. This is actually why we pay money for things. You know, if I want a Starbucks coffee, then for me in that moment, that Starbucks coffee is worth more than a $5 bill. That's why I'm willing to give up the $5 bill to get the Starbucks coffee. It's of more value to me, right? If something is of more value, then we would be foolish not to give up other things to get it, right? And that's what this parable is saying. Um, what are some of the ways uh, that people suffer in the world? So we can kind of like meditate a little bit on that, of this place that we are so attached to, okay? Um, one way that we suffer in the world is from the damage that is in the world, right? The natural damage that came through sin, which could be disease, natural disaster, death. No one escapes these things. You can't be clever enough to escape them. This world is characterized by these things all the time. We just had this really bad winter storm. We have hurricanes, there's earthquakes, there's volcanoes, there's all kinds of natural disasters. There's reasons that people die of disease all the time. The world has a pandemic. This is our world, okay, that we live in. In addition to that, we all suffer from our own corrupted nature. We all struggle with selfishness, hatred, envy, lack of forgiveness, lack of mercy. We, we, we struggle in ourselves to do what is right. There is a suffering in just knowing what is right and being unable to do it that we struggle with. This is a suffering. That we are not in control of ourselves. That sin is a master over us, right? This is a struggle. We suffer from the destruction of the truth. No one can agree on what is true. It's like you're, you're walking through this fog and no one can, no two people see the same thing. You know, in this world that we live, no two people see the same world when they look around. One person sees it red, another person sees it blue. And no one can come to an agreement on who is right. And there is no arbiter of truth. Because what was the arbiter of truth, which is religion, which is God, has been ejected. Who used to be the one to decide when someone had one view and another person had another view? It was the word of God. We looked at the word of God and say, what does God say about this situation? And who are the ones that were entrusted as the ones to interpret and explain and judge according to the word of God? It was the church. The church was the organization that brought truth and meaning to the world because it reminded people of the truth. And when one thing was wrong, it was called out to be wrong, not according to the individual opinions of humans, according to the scripture. That's how it was for a long time. The world we live in now has lost that. So there is no arbiter of truth. There is no final say. There is no referee. You know, imagine like in a, in a, in a, in a sports game, you got two teams playing and each one sees it different. Each one is saying that the, the ball is out on the other team. Who do you go to? You go to the referee. You go to the replay. You go to something that is objective something that is reliable and something that can tell you the truth and then we submit to the truth. We all can look at that replay and say, yes, this is the truth. The, the world doesn't have a referee anymore and there is no replay. Everyone is just playing. They're just playing in this crazy field with no rules and everyone is claiming that they are the ones that are right and no one is there to say otherwise. Everyone just says, no, I'm right. 
So there's no way to know where the truth is. This is this is really a, a major suffering that we have in the world. There is no arbiter of truth that is accepted by people. So those are some of the ways that we suffer in the world. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Actually, we're at 8.30 now. So this is, a, this is a good stopping point. We can continue this next time. Any questions or comments before we conclude? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask you, O God, that you be with us and you strengthen us as individuals and as a church. We ask, O God, that you allow us to be a pillar of light so that those who are living in darkness, who have been blinded by the God of this age and not seeing the truth and not knowing where to find it, can look to us and see the source of truth in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. That the church is a place where we come to learn the truth, to understand the truth, and to live the truth. We ask, O oh God, that you bless us and you protect the, the church from all of the negative influences that are outside that seek to destroy her. We ask that you keep us to be faithful throughout our entire lives to the very end, focusing always on our inward man. Because we know that the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. We thank you, O oh God, because you reveal all these things to us. They make us to understand the truth and to understand ourselves, to understand where we came from and where we are going. We ask, O oh God, that you bless those standing here and those who could not be here and all of the churches of Houston and Texas and all the world. We ask that you give us strength and resolve and a desire for holiness and to live a life of self-sacrifice for you, being willing to accept the sufferings of the cross, to share those sufferings with you so that your glory might be manifested in us. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God, the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.